I, we don't really know what's going on at Four Points Church in the best way possible. Uh, last week, uh, we just started giving a call uh, to acknowledge the fact that uh, for all of us in various ways and levels have fallen short of the glory of God and we are in desperate need of His intervention in our lives. And we invited you to repent and acknowledge your need and the altars were flooded with people uh, that just decided instead of playing church, they would come and repent. It's amazing what happens when people start actually practicing what the Bible would call us to do. It's like God shows up or something. It's really weird. Um, when instead of acting like we're well put together and not in need of a Savior, we act as though we're a desperate people that are in need of His intervention and supervision in our lives. He shows up and He fills that space. God responds to need. And when you have a need and you bring it to God, He shows up. And when you act like you don't have a need, though you have a need... And then you blame God for it because you never bring it to him. You, you end up walking away in bitterness and frustration with something that God intended to perhaps intersect with his greatness, his glory, and his presence. So that he could take the burden off of your shoulders and deliver you from a life of self-sufficiency so that you could live in God dependency. Huh. And last week we saw people flooding the altar and in early service, six people giving their, uh, coming forward in believers' baptism and professing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It was a hootenanny up in here. Like, it was crazy. Uh, for some of y'all don't know what a hootenanny is, Matthew does, he's from Mississippi, it's where you, you, you get a banjo out and you begin to like really start stomping the knee, it's a, anyway, my, my point is, uh, we're in a unique season and we're just trying to do what the Holy Spirit will lead us to do as we teach and preach his word, we're in a teaching series that we believe God has brought us to, to help us respond to his work in our lives, it's called Made by the Word. The idea is that as followers of Jesus, we are uh, in that step of his path to be like the Jesus of the Bible, not the pseudo-Jesuses that fit our appetites or have been culturally appropriated that make us think that he's more acceptable in today's society. Uh, Jesus would not be accepted today in our world. He would be rejected just like he was in their world. He would be ridiculed and mocked. He would be uh, called bigot and other things whenever he walked this earth if he were here today because Jesus walked in a holy path that is absent and foreign to all of us. And so what is holiness to him sometimes seems like uh, oppression to us because we don't know what freedom is because we've been slaves so long uh, that we don't understand the path of freedom and what it actually looks like. Now, I'm preaching way better than y'all responding to that. And I understand that you may not have a pastor that comes out this hot swinging, but I, I don't know how to pace myself for a 10-round fight because I probably got three good rounds in me, so let's go. Okay? So, so, so we, we, just, we, we want you to know that there is a dangerous trap to trying to get to know Jesus apart from the Bible. What ends up happening is you get cherry-picked Jesus. That's where you take the parts of the Bible that you like about Jesus, mainly the parts about grace and mercy for you, and then wrath and condemnation for the neighbor that you don't like, want to love, or forgive. And then you make a Jesus that's always backing you and fighting your battles for you because you've proved text Exodus to where you only have to stand still for him to fight your battles, not knowing that God came to lay down his life for your enemies. And part of walking in his path is you suffering sometimes the blows from enemies that become friends as Jesus changes their life, as you uh, extend his grace and mercy to them. You see, cherry-picked Jesus can't deliver you from your own sin because it's not the real Jesus that we see in the Bible. Pseudo-Jesuses that we create that fit culture can't actually save you and deliver you from your addictions and your brokenness and the life that you live outside of here in your own self-sufficiency because those pseudo-Jesuses have been informed by Fox News, but they've not been informed by God's news, which is Genesis to Revelation. And if you're offended by that, then we've got problems. 
because we've obviously got a different kind of Jesus that we've allowed the world to manipulate and create. And I just want to get back to the biblical Jesus, the one that's found on the pages of Scripture, and get back to walking in his steps because I'm convinced that he's the actual God that can save us, deliver us, and send the Spirit to empower us to be the people that he's called us to be. And so I want, I want you to be made by the Word. I want your life, your Christianity, your practice to look like the life that Jesus lived, empowered by the Spirit with which Jesus lived and surrendered to. And so today I want to step into the next week of this series and talk to you about the fact that we serve a God who is a man of His Word. And so if you want to know what you're on this earth to do, if you want to know what God is doing on this earth in the midst of tragedy and difficulty in the nightly news, then you need to look no further than the very pages of your Bible because what God has said he would do within the context of your scriptures is what he continues to faithfully do in our lives around us. Where do we get this concept from? Well, if you go all the way back to the book of Numbers, there's a prophet that went to God on behalf of a king, came back with a prophecy that the king didn't like. And so the king said, go again. Ask your God to change that word. But there's a big problem. God doesn't change his word when it doesn't fit our agenda or it doesn't go along with what we like to hear. He's not here to tickle your ears and, for some of you, make you feel like you're all right in and of yourself. For the majority of you in here, you're not all right. You need Jesus to intervene. You need him to wake you up and awaken your eyes to the reality that apart from his intervention in your life, you're going to waste all of your time for your own glory and not his. And you're going to come to the very end of your life having wasted on something that will not matter in eternity. So there is a need for the real Jesus to come in the room and wake you up in his grace and in his mercy because his invitation to you right now is that you would bow before him and surrender in utter dependence upon him so that you could live the life that you've been put on this earth to live and not miss out on a spirit-filled existence existence that echoes in eternity as a praise to God, which some of you are in danger of doing with the time that you've been given and the life that you've now gotten consumed with the things of this earth. Simply put, you've been consumed with civilian affairs when you've been recruited into the very kingdom of God and the army of God where you need to have your boots on to be the people of God that he's called you to be serving faithfully as he gets ready for his return into human history. So the prophet didn't like, or excuse me, the king didn't like what the prophet said God had said, and so he says to him, change it. And this is what the prophet said under the spirit. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He's not a man, so he doesn't lie. He's not fabricating a story about his greatness, about his ability, about his power. He didn't say, come to me, some of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I can handle some of y'all's burdens, but some of y'all are just too much. He wasn't lying. He, he meant, come all ye who are broken. I'm not going to King James on you, the Spirit's showing up. Come all ye who are broken. Come all ye who are weary. Come all ye who are heavy laden. Come all ye in your dysfunction. Come all ye in your inability to deliver yourself from yourself to me. And I will give you what you in your labor cannot give yourself. And that is peace and rest and satisfaction in your soul. He's not a man, so he's not lied. He's not exaggerated his ability. He has not exaggerated what he can do. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. This is one of the best theological things that you can know about God. He is, here's the word, immutable, which means he does not change. And it's good news for you that he doesn't change. Because how many of you have done enough stupid stuff to give God reason to change his mind? I am the chief of stupid stuff doing that has given God reason that if he were to second guess his come to me all who are weary or whosoever 
comes to me, I, I will save them, right? John 3, 16. Like, I've given him reason to go, you know what, Russ, that was for a lot of people. But we are getting into some grounds that are testing that promise. No, no, no. God doesn't change. He knew exactly what he was getting into when he made the offer to you. Huh. I love this. I, I'm, this isn't even in the notes, but what is anymore? In, my, my, uh, in the entire book of Romans... Paul is writing because there's this ethnic tension going on culturally. The Jewish Christians are trying to make the Gentile Christians more Jewish so they can be in the synagogue. And they get kicked out of Rome. And then they come back to Rome and they discover that the Gentiles didn't save their seats. So they're mad that their seats have been taken in the synagogue by this Gentile group of people. And so they're trying to make the Gentiles, uh, trying to make it more difficult for them to be Christian. You ever met a Christian that wants to make it difficult for everybody else to be Christian? It's like, here's, here's what God said, now let's add on four more steps to it. That's what the Pharisees did, so that we can just make you feel discouraged, so that I look like a superhero Christian, you look like a discouraged Christian, but you hang around me because you need me, because I need codependency to make me feel significant in my own life. So I want to add to the Word of God to try and make it something that it's not actually meant to be. Anybody met that Christian? Okay, I, uh, don't get too prideful, you might end up being that Christian. Here's my point. Here's my point. Paul uses the word adoption over and over again in his letter to the Romans. Why? Because there was this understanding in the Roman church. This is free. I don't know why I'm saying it, but I'm going to say it. There's this understanding in the Roman church that if you had a kid by natural means, you could disown them because you didn't know what you were getting into. Any parents want to take up the Roman cultural value? I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know that was coming out of the gene pool. Why did that come? I, I didn't ask for crazy Uncle Larry to be rebirthed in this kid. Like, I don't understand. And so there was this cultural belief that you could say, God, I didn't know, you know, turn them into the state and y'all deal with them, which is what some of you have done anyway. You didn't know that was a Roman rule. You just went ahead and checked out on parenting. But that's another sermon for another time. I won't dive into that. It's too much meddling. My point is there was also this belief that if you adopted a kid, you could never give them back because you knew exactly what you were getting into. So Paul says, under the Holy Spirit's influence, you are the adopted family of God. And what he is saying is God knew exactly what he was getting into with you knuckleheads. And he's not giving you back. God knew all of it. Every twist and turn. Every mansplaining moment of your life. Where you tried to mansplain reasons for being apathetic and indifferent to the things of God and the purpose of God. And he still invited you and I to his table. Man, we serve a God who is a man of his word. He does not lie. He does not change his mind. He has never spoken and failed to act. So you're like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and they didn't get better. We prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and it got worse. And there are moments in my life that seem as though they are absent from the action of God. So I've got a real problem with that verse, Pastor. I know what I'm supposed to believe, but I know what I've experienced in my life, and the two aren't lining up with what I can see. I know I'm supposed to believe that God is capable and able and acting in every season, even when I cannot see it, sense it, or feel it. But I know that in this season, what I feel is overwhelmed, pressed down, burdened, and as if God is silent in the midst of my trial, tribulation, and trouble. That's why you need the promises of God. That's why we need to go through the word that we're going through 
today because for some of you, you're allowing a single moment of your life to define the entire legacy of a God who has been telling a story long before you got here. And what he has promised is not that in every season and circumstance of your life you'll get deliverance from that pain or that suffering. Paul had a thorn for the entirety of his life in his flesh. He asked God to take it away. God never took it away, but used it to make him more dependent upon God, which made him a more dependent vessel that God could use for his glory. So not everything you ask God to take away is going to be taken away from your life. Some things are there so that you stay close to God and you depend on God. But here's the good news. Death doesn't have the final say. Death Death in Revelation gets thrown into the lake of fire, and it is done away with. And the resurrection is about you and I understanding that the greatest nemesis of humanity, death, is ultimately got a time-stamped date on it, not a time-stamped date on you, and that at the second coming of Christ, death will be done away with, and there'll be no more tears, no more cancers, no more diseases, no more need for doctors, because the good doctor and good shepherd has made what was wrong right forever, and that is the good news that we are to hold on to in the midst of the moments of life when we feel overwhelmed as if God's action isn't active in our life. Can you give him praise for the fact that some of you can't. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me just stay here for a minute because what is happening within time seems to be everything to you. And you need to understand that in God's view, it is not everything. Your life is a vapor. It's important. It's been redeemed by the very blood of Jesus, but it is a vapor. And what God is doing is greater than one generation and greater than one lifetime. And you've got to get that perspective when you view the world's tragedies and the world's heartaches because you need to understand that God is not inactive. You just can't see his active hand. What you have seen over history and time, though, in the rearview mirror, and I would submit to you this as an apologetic, is that if you look in the rearview mirror, what you will notice is there are plenty of times in your life where you thought God was not there, God was not at work, there was nothing good coming out of it, and what you discover is that the promise in Romans 8 was fulfilled. You just couldn't see it when you looked in the rearview and you realized, man, God was there, God was active, and God was at work. I just was not aware of it. I did not sense it. God is here, and I didn't know it. That's what Jacob said at his worst moment when he was lying on a rock in the middle of nowhere in between his dad's house and his father-in-law's house. He didn't know God was with him. And guess what? God was in the process and in the details the entire time. Let me get back to the text. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. I wasn't supposed to spend this much time here, but hey, they're having fun. Has he ever, here's the word, has he ever promised and not carried it through? Now, this is a question that we can ask in a few ways. In your experience, are there promises that you believe God has given that he's not fulfilled? Probably. You're still awaiting the fulfillment of the promise. There's probably that. But let's go to the Old Testament. Are there things that God promised in the Old Testament in the Messiah that have not been fulfilled? The answer is, for the most part, no. What we see in Isaiah 53 is a very detailed description of the death in which Jesus would die and the reason for which he would die it. And he's gone through those details and died that death, the time in which he would be born and what would be happening in Jewish history when it happened. And, and he was born just before the temple was destroyed, which was prophesied in the Old Testament in advance of it. Psalm 22 goes into even more detail on the death and the type of life that Jesus would live and the, the toning death that he would die. All the Jewish festivals were put in and instituted so they would point to this Messiah that would come and ultimately be our Passover lamb and be our light in the midst of the darkness. And so what we see in the scripture is this foreshadowing and this looking ahead on these promises that are yet to be received 
by God, but he delivered on them through Christ in our lives, which gives us reason to believe that the things that Jesus promised that have yet to be realized and yet to be seen in our life are worthy of our faithful expectation in the waiting as we wait on God to come through. But let me be the first to commit to you that the promises of God are very difficult at times to understand, and it can be very perplexing and sometimes depressing to think that maybe we've just chosen the suffer forever card and we're struggling to find any joy in the midst of the trial and the tribulation that we're in. We begin to accept things that maybe are not eternal, but we just think they're going to be our lifetime. That may or may not actually extend for the entirety of our life. How do you understand the promises of God? I want to give you a little bit of an education, then I want to give you a bit of a foundation to leave here on with the last few moments that I have. Why are the promises of God so hard to understand? Let me give you a few reasons why I have found the promises of God to be difficult to understand, though he doesn't change his promise, and he comes through on it. Number one, we misunderstand the, uh, misunderstood the difference between a principle and a promise in the Bible. One of the biggest places where people get messed up on the promises of God is when they begin to take principles of the Bible and claim them as promises in places that God never offered them to be claimed. Like the book of Proverbs, okay, is a book of great Christian principles for living. There are some promises that are found within the book of Proverbs, but there are a lot of things that we have been told is a promise that is actually a principle. Let me tell you the difference. A promise happens 100% of the time. A principle is a good truth for living. General truths for living. They're not bad, they're good. But it's not that it's a pr there's a promise that goes, if you do this, you will see the harvest that you see. In this world, good seed goes in the ground and gets snatched away. You've got to remember, there are times where you live by good biblical principles and life doesn't get easier, it gets more complex, or you go through difficulties. But in time, we have this overarching thing in the Bible that God will work as we're faithful to him to produce great fruit in our lives as we abide in him and by his spirit he endures us through whatever it is that we are going through in our lives. So there are some principles that we've put in the category of promise. Let me give you an example. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 is one of my favorite examples of this. Direct your children on the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. Now, what's the definition of a promise? It's something that, when done, God comes through 100% of the time and delivers on that. This is an example of a principle. Let me give you a few examples of why. There's a guy named Aaron. He's a priest. He's faithful to the Lord. If his kids mimicked his faithfulness, they would be more like God. What do they do? They take the things of God casually, they offer God a half-hearted sacrifice, and they die. Sometimes good parents love the Lord, love their children, walk with the Lord faithful, are invested in their kids' lives in a faithful way, and what ends up happening is the kids grow up and with their own volition go their own way, and they don't come back. That's tough. I've counseled many a parent who has sat in my office, and they're like, we know we were flawed. We know we made mistakes. We tried to own up to them. We tried to demonstrate our dependency in Christ. But we have sons or daughters that have just gone so wayward, and they've run straight past the pig pen in the prodigal son story, and they're still going. They're not coming back. King David was a man after what? You ever looked at his kids? I mean, Solomon's, what we got is the extension on the throne. He writes a lot of the... Proverbs and Song of Solomon wisdom literature. He's got a lot of that attributed to him. He had to write Ecclesiastes because he got so excessive in life. He threw the biggest parties with the most stuff, and then he goes, oh, it's all meaningless. Isn't it easy to say whenever you've been the billionaire to say it's meaningless? 
Because all of us are down here going, man, maybe there's meaning in it still. And the billionaire's like, oh, it's meaningless. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And you're like, well, I wish I could have a little bit more of that to find out. <laughs> right? Like any, anybody with me on that one? You have people all, all the time, they're like, hey, I'm just satisfied with where I'm at, which is a good principle. You should be. But you've thought in your mind, man, that lottery would be nice one time to give it a go. I would be generous. I would not be like everybody else in hiding ungenerous, building fences and walls, which is what hell is described as, a place with fences and walls. Well, anyway, but my, my point, my point, my point is that for, for a lot of us, we've gotten principles mixed up with promises. You can be a faithful parent, and your kids have a volition, they have a will, and they may choose with that volition and will to go crazy. And you may have to endure a long period of time of praying and grieving over where your kids are at, trusting in the fact that as you pray and you continue to invest and walk with the Lord faithfully, that he will intercede on their behalf. But we don't have that promise because at the end of the day, God's chief value is love, and he will never make someone love him that doesn't choose to love him. This is hard. This is hard theology to understand. He is completely sovereign over time, but he has created time to be a construct with which we can work and respond to him and enjoy him freely. And He wants you to love him, but he will not make you love him. He will not make you be obedient to him. So... Yes, you should be a good parent that invests in your kids. Yes, you should follow Jesus in a way that is mimicable, which means you should repent and let them see the grace of God that's sufficient for your weaknesses and your needs because your kids don't need your greatest hit stories to be what's seen. We always listen to Christian music. No, you don't. You listen to Bon Jovi still. We know it, okay? So stop. Like, let's stop acting, like, because like, that's what we do around church. Like, we try to act, and this is why our kids, they respond to this, because they see it's, it's kind of fake, because mom turns the dial whenever we get close to church. Mom starts acting different whenever the pastor comes over. Like, 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 let's just acknowledge the fact that every single one of us in various ways are hypocrites in this place, and we need Jesus to save us, and that's really where the Christianity is being danced at. We're trying to depend on Jesus, though we wander from Jesus, and our kids need to see what it looks like for Jesus to wrestle with us and win in our life. So let them see the moments of your failure where appropriate, and let them see the grace of God that's sufficient to keep you near to him and walking with him so that they know that God is faithful in theirs. So that we don't misunderstand, the reason we misunderstand the promises of God is we put promises in the principle category or principles in the promise category. The second reason is for often for many of us, we forget the gap. The gap between when we receive a promise and when we, uh, when we hear a promise and when we actually receive it. Everybody in the Bible waited on a promise. God promised his Messiah was coming. He writes Malachi, and then guess what happens? 400 years of silence. Some of you have been waiting three months, and you've already become practical atheists. You don't believe God's coming. We, we gave him a season. We gave him a season. Okay? Let me just remind you of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Some of you haven't received a promise. Could I tell you it may only be one day away? which to the Lord <laughs> may be a thousand years. See, some of y'all got really excited. It may only be a day away. It may, but it may be a thousand years away. Is God worthy of the wait? I'm asking, seriously. If God's promised that he would work and he would move in your life, and is he worthy of the wait and the process? Like, like I just want to throw that out there. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, no, no. He is being patient for your sake. He's being patient for your sake. Why? Because it's God's desire that none would be destroyed, but that everyone would repent. Why has God not come through on his return? Because he's being patient for many of you, dare I say, as we used to say in Cali, chuckleheads, to come to the Lord and bend your knee now. 
Because bending your knee at his second coming in judgment is not where you want to be. So we invite you to bend now and surrender and be forgiven and be restored and be made new. Know this. Anybody that has the work of God going on in their life, there's a process that you go through, and it takes longer than you can anticipate or expect. You see, many of you are overestimating what you can get done in a short amount of time, but you're underestimating what God will do with all of your time. Hmm. The problem is you only want to give them part of your time. So the inconsistency remains in your life because you're not patient to wait in the gap. Many of us don't uh, understand the promises of God because we don't understand the gap. Number three, we forgot that some promises start with an if. That if was in your Bible for a reason. Now, we receive everything by grace. It is not by effort or work, but there are some things that God gives us as a promise that we have to ask for. For instance, James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If you need wisdom, here's the key. In Greek, it means ask. It means ask. Now, some of you have asked your buddies. You've asked all your Hank Williams good old boys. You, you, you've asked Jeeves back in the 90s. You've asked, anybody remember that? Anyway, now you just ask Google, and we're not getting wiser. You know information, but you do dumb stuff with it. The internet is filled with your videos of dumb things you've done with good information. There's a difference between having information and being wise. If you want to be wise, you've got to go to God. The beginning of wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs, is what? The fear of the Lord. The wisest thing you can ask as a teenager is, God, help me to know how to properly fear you. You don't hear that in church anymore. What do young people need? Fear of God. Not of not having a social media following. Not of obscurity. Fear of God. Why? Because you are going to stand before God to give an account for your life, and he has seen all of it. And on that day, it'll either be all wrapped up in the grace of Christ, in the mercy of Christ, or it'll be you standing in your self-sufficiency, which will not stand in the presence of a holy God. And we don't want to tell you that, because we want to baby you and powder your butt and give you ribbons for, like, underperforming and doing half the, halfway. Th and, and, and look, you just need to know, you need to fear God, because at the end of the day, you're not going to stand before your peers, but you're going to stand before God. And that day may come quick. Yesterday, I did a funeral for a 31-year-old mother of two. You are not promised old age. God doesn't owe you an old life where you die in your sleep. This world is filled with tragedy. Earthquakes come and take out entire villages of people. And God is not okay with it. That's why he sent his son, and that's why his son is coming back. But in the meantime, we live between the trees where things for a time are allowed in a disruptive and broken way to speak to the broken kingdom that's passing away at the second coming of Christ. So you need to know you have been created by God to image God, and your sin has kept you from relationship with God, which is the very purpose for which you have been put on this earth. You have not been made for a skill set or an ability or to appease your parents or to appease a group of people or to build a following and to become a celebrity. You have been made for the glory of God and the purpose of God to be living life by the hand of God at work in your life. Yes. For many of us, for many of us, we lack wisdom, we lack a fear of God, because we don't go to God and ask. Instead, we go to every other resource and looking. Ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. And here's what you need to know about this promise about him giving you wisdom. He will not rebuke you for asking it. So several years ago, I read the book of James. I was back in college for the first time. And so I've made it a daily habit to begin to ask God for wisdom, because I'm dumb. And it's not a joke. 
I make dumb mistakes. I do stupid and foolish things. I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. I'm just trying to tell you I don't trust myself. One of the greatest, most maturing lessons of my life is I learn not to trust me. See, the problem a lot of y'all are having is you still think that you're mainly reliable and trustworthy. I go to work. <laughs> wow. Congratulations. I make money. That's super. It's awesome. I'm proud of you. That's, that's, that's great. That's great. But that should not be the defining marker of trustworthiness, should it? I mean, let, let's put it this way. How many of you trust everybody at your work that shows up too? See, I threw my arms out like that for the point. So there are a lot of people that show up, but you wouldn't trust them with your life. In fact, when they're working your line, you're like, watch out. <laughs> Larry done impaled three people this week. He ain't getting me. But he showed up. If you lack wisdom, you've got to ask God. There's ifs tied to some promises. Pay attention to them if you want to understand how they work. Number four, the reason we don't understand promises is we chose selective memory with the promises of God. And let me explain it this way. Many of us, we like to cherry pick the promises we want to attribute to ourselves. So we like all the ones about victory, grace, mercy, overcoming, God fighting our battles for our enemies that may be the people that we're called to love, you know, here nor there. Uh, we love that, but what you don't see on, you know, coffee cups in the morning is like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. No one's pouring a cup of coffee and going, yep, the Lord disciplines those he loves. That's a promise, just not a convenient one. Because it means that you and I, though we get to be the corrector as parents, sometimes end up being the corrected by our Heavenly Father. And He's not doing it because He's embarrassed by you. He's doing it because He's maturing you. He's developing you. He's helping you move along. But how many of you are rocking a t-shirt? Hey, what's your favorite promise in the Bible? God disciplines those that He loves. We carry it over into other promises where we take part of the promise and we edit the rest of the promise. If you go to the book of John, a lot of us love the promise of John 16, at the end. Uh, John 16, I, uh, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes. Okay, here's the problem. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me, not in the world. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Most of us put the dot, 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 and we start it with the next part. What we don't understand is that the first part in the middle is what we need to know so that we have hope with the second part. You're going to have trouble, and it's not going to go away. You're going to have trouble, and it's going to haunt you and stay around you and be a part of your life for a long time. But take heart, God's overcome the world. You're going to have trouble, but God's going to be with you in the trouble. So take, take heart. Don't hang your head down. Hang your head high in the countenance and the presence of God and His purpose in your life. Romans 8, 28 is another one. Right? For God works for the good of those who love him. Amen. According. See, some of y'all got into a lot of problems at Sears. Because you did the same thing. You went in and bought an appliance and you didn't read the fine print. That's more true than you wanted it to be. You went in into that car dealership and you got into all kinds of financial and economic trouble. You know why? You didn't read the fine print. You didn't pay attention to the context and the whole of the verse. Romans 8, 28, for God works for the good of those who love him according to his will. And many of you are presumptuous enough to think that you know God's will. You, you make suggestions daily about what God's will should be in your life. Let me just go ahead and tell you, many of us in many circumstances have no clue what the will of God is. 
Most of the stuff that I know God has done is stuff that he's already finished. I'm still trying to figure out what he's doing right now in my current present moment of life. So for many of us, we chose selective memory with the promises of God. So I've talked a lot about that. Let me tell you what the promises of God are. Some, some foundational ones to build your life on, to give you hope in the midst of trials and tribulations. Let me run through these. You ready? Here's a promise from God. He'll be with you. That should matter more than anything else. If you've got God, you can handle anything. If you don't have God, even if you have no problems, you're going to have problems. See, many of you only want God until he fixes the problem. And then you want to wander from God into self-sufficiency, which creates what? Problems. Do you see the cycle? I'm not smart. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not really, you know, I don't have doctor beside my name. But I've begun living on this earth long enough. I'm 39 rotations around the sun now. I've begun noticing some cycles. I come to God because I'm in need of him. I'm broken. I, I get filled up by God. I leave and wonder from God as if I don't need him. I become complacent. Then guess what I have? A need and problems in my life. I start parenting in a carnal way. I start living as a selfish husband again. I start acting like a self-centered pastor and thinking about what I deserve versus what I should be doing as a servant and a lead servant in this church. And next thing you know, I realize I need God to save me from myself again. So I come back to God. I de desperately declare my dependency upon God again. I cry out to him. I need you. I need you. He fills me. Guess what I do? I wander away from God. What you need is God with you, whether it's the valley or the mountaintop. You need God with you. And what God's promise is that no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, if you're in Christ Jesus, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. When it gets rough, when you're persecuted, when they try and wipe your name off the face of the earth. I'm studying Christian history, and there's a site in Rome. A Roman emperor came in in the 200s A.D. mark, and he made it his mission to get rid of all Christians. And so they actually would round up Christians. They would lock them in jails. They would kill many of them. And then they would try and burn all Christian literature off of the earth. They ground up every Bible they could find, put them in a pile, and lit them on fire. They put a sign up that says, The End of Christianity. He didn't know who he was messing with. I was trying to be eliminated from the world and moved away at the end of the age. It continues to remain the hope that every soul needs. God is with us, number one. Number two, God will help us in our time of need. We see this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, and John chapter 15. Hebrews 13, 5, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. What is that to say? It is to say, that for all that effort you're putting into winning the lottery, if you would put it into abiding in Christ, you would find him to be more, more of a provider than any amount of money will ever be able to provide for you. More of a satisfier of your soul than any possession or thing can ever satisfy for you. When he is your chief possession, when he is the treasure of your heart, and you love him with everything, then what you end up having is a right view of everything else. Jesus promised in John chapter 15, verse 26, but I will send the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. You need help? He sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, to do in and through you what you can't do in and through yourself. This is the good news. You have help. So you're like, I, I just can't, I can't honor God right now. I can't, I can't be faithful to God right now. I just got to get my life together. I just got to get this. No, 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 no. You need help. You need help. So God sent the Spirit to help you. He knows you aren't going to get there by your own effort. There's not enough rotations around the sun that you're going to make to get it right. So he sent the helper. 
Why? So that you will always, in every season, whether it's in a season of prospering or in a season of suffering, you will find yourself provided for by the Spirit for every good work He's called you to. He provides for every good work that He's called you to by His Spirit. He will be with us. He will help us. Our salvation is secure in Christ. Number three, no one can snatch them away from Him. You didn't receive salvation because of performance, therefore you can't lose salvation because of performance. So stop thinking your performance makes you a good Christian or a better Christian and start understanding that what we do is our joy and our honor by the work of the Spirit as a response of praise to God. Uh, Number four, what has he promised to do? He's promised that he will give wisdom when we ask. Are y'all still awake out there? Number five, he will provide a way out of temptation. Don't act like you've got too much temptation on your plate. No, God's got an off-ramp. You just aren't taking it. What does the off-ramp look like? Let me give you some signs of what the off-ramp looks like. Psalm 33 says, When I kept silent about my sin, your, your hand was heavy upon me day and night. My bones wasted away. You, you know God's off-ramp from temptation often? It's community and repentance. It's you in the dark stepping into the light going, Look, this is what we normally keep back there, but I'm not keeping it in the dark anymore. Because it's not going to be dealt with in the dark. It's got to be in the light. I'm going to repent of this, and I'm going to trust the word that when it says, he's faithful and just to forgive me all my sins and iniquity, Psalm 33, if you keep reading it, that if I bring it to light and I repent, that he will be faithful and just to do that. Now let me go ahead and tell you what the enemy's doing is he's trying to tell you that the second they know, they'll walk away from you. And let me just go ahead and help you. Some of them will. Some of them will. Because they shouldn't have ever been there to begin with. They shouldn't have even been there to begin with. But what you'll find when you confess your sin and walk in the light is a brother that sits closer than a friend. A community that will walk with you as you walk in recovery. Because let's be honest, recovery communities acknowledge what all of us are denying. That all of us in various ways are in recovery. (laughs) I gotta move on. Number six. God will finish what he begins, Philippians 1.6. He's not done. He's not done. Yeah, you've, you've taken a year off. Yeah, you took the last decade off. He's not done. He's not done. It's never too late. It's never too late with God. Number seven, he will return. And this should mark the way that we live right now. Jesus is coming back. This is real. You think the man that said he was coming out of the tomb and then when he got out of the tomb said he was coming back ain't coming back? You're hedging your bet (laughs) that the dude that predicted his death and resurrection isn't going to follow through on a white horse coming back as king of kings and lord of lords? He will return. I could preach that one all day. Number eight, apparently I wrote five sermons this week. We, we will live with Christ forever. Those who are in Christ Jesus will live with Christ forever. We have eternal life. We're going to live with him forever, which means that eternity should impact the way that we live today. Last week we had a, a mini response of God. I'm not going to use the R word. People started responding, repenting of sin. There's a group of people that are about to be baptized. In just a second, we invite those that have signed up or desire to be baptized to head to the back. There will be a group of people that will walk with you. I think Kelsey's going back there now. 
to help you get changed, and then we're going to celebrate their baptism. But we want to give you the opportunity, if you're not a follower of Christ, to become a follower of Christ. If you have walked away from God, been apathetic and indifferent and numb to God, to bend your knee in repentance and cry out to God. Uh, so we're going to respond, stand to our feet. If you need to give your life to Jesus, our prayer team is here. You come forward. If you need to repent of sin, you come forward and bend your knee and pray. You move as the Lord leads. If you need to be baptized, you can stand up. Let's stand up. Y'all set for a while. Sit, stand up. You need to be baptized? Come forward. Talk to us about it. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be baptized. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen.